there is no reason that a teacher, whether it's early childhood or K-12, should have to use the same subsidies that we are putting in my world families into early childhood so we can break cycles of poverty, why are we creating a poverty-driven workforce? Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. This is Annalise Corbin, Chief Goddess of the Past Foundation and your host. We hear frequently that the global education system is broken. In fact, we spend billions of dollars trying to fix something that's actually not broken at all, but rather irrelevant. It's obsolete. A hundred years ago, it functioned fine. So let's talk about how we reimagine, rethink, and redesign our educational system. So welcome to today's episode of Learning Unboxed. As always, I am super excited about the conversation that we are about to have because I have a a great colleague in the Central Ohio area, uh, Colin Page McGinnis. Um, I always love to use the, the whole name for you, Colin, because it's awesome that how you had that out there. Um, so Colin McGinnis is currently the CEO of Southside Early Learning, which is a high quality early learning school founded back in 1922, which very few people I suspect understand how long it's been around. And Colin is passionate about early education and ending the disparities that prevent young learners from accessing the education they need to make sure that they have a solid foundation as they get pushed into K-12 opportunity. But he's also working to end low wages paid to teachers who are helping to create these foundations that will influence children's success in life. And um, for that, we applaud you as well. So welcome to the program, Colin. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. Excellent. Excellent. So um, just to set a little bit of context and stage um, for our listeners who come from all over the world, Colin and I, about, what is it, maybe 15 months or so ago, did a piece um, locally as part of uh, the inaugural class of the Future 50 here in Columbus, which was 50 innovative leaders in our community who were just out there um, willing to do crazy things, right, for the betterment of our community. And I think that's the best way to put it, you know, yeah. because it was almost anything goes. And Colin and I hopped on very quickly and said, hey, you know, education is a really big issue in our community, both positive and negative. And there's a lot that needs to be thought about differently in this space. And so we wrote a moonshot around uh, the potential for education in our community. And so I want to dig in first, Colin, with... Um, let's 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 talk about your background. Um, share with our listeners and sort of the the hundred thousand foot view of Southside Early Learning because that all translates into why you and I wrote a moonshot. Yeah. So again, my name's Colin Page McGinnis. By training, I'm a developmental psychologist and I'm actually an early childhood policy guy. So I did not venture my way into early childhood in the traditional uh, teacher route or through a background in the classroom. I'm actually a researcher through and through um, Mm -hmm. and a policy wonk. Um, And (laughs) it's been fun to connect all those worlds together. When I actually applied for the role at Southside and took over in 2018, I was given really a blank slate to build something on a 100-year legacy. So like you mentioned, Southside's been around since 1922. We have always served the Southside of Columbus. So those not familiar with the area, 
um, really a portion of our community that is dealing with the heart of hard. Um, mm -hmm. It was a manufacturing community that had the manufacturing really stripped away. A lot of inequality, the opioid epidemic hit really hard. Um, and as a staple in the community, we've been there to ground things together. And our approach to early childhood maybe doesn't look all that different from like the website's component, but really is quite unique in that there are four aspects of our work that we're doing day in and day out. Um, the first being we're embedding professional development. We're ensuring that our teachers are treated like professionals that they are. We're integrating data into everything that we're doing, which I think is a little more normed in K-12, mm -hmm. but definitely not in early childhood. Right. We have this holistic and integrated family approach, even having a social work team on staff that's been around on staff since the 1980s. And then we're going and we're making sure we're using evidence-based best practice, that we're taking the research that's coming out from awesome institutions across the country and the world and actually closing that bridge between practitioner and researcher and bringing that work to life. And it's been, it's been an awesome experience and coming from the research side of the house, coming from a university right. and for my graduate work, honestly, into this role has been a ton of fun. And I feel like I've been able to build moonshots every day. So when we had the opportunity to think about what if we reimagined education, and I think it was an awesome opportunity for Southside and Pass to come together because right. we realized, hey, <laughs> we actually could connect and align quite a bit and take from six weeks old all the way through, I mean, college and beyond, really yeah. thinking about what if we yeah. radically shaped the tree mm -hmm. and had something different emerge and then when we layered on the pandemic, I think both organizations realized mm -hmm. this might be the time that we can do that. Right, right. But, you know, we're going to get this this rare once in a lifetime in many ways opportunity to say, whoa, 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 whoa. All right. Blank slate. Let's try again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so if we can just get everybody on board with us, Colin, that's going to be the thing. Exactly. And I think <laughs> I think we can do it if we try hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> I think so too. So, um, you know, I, I think that, I think that it was a unique perspective, right? That the board of Southside Early Learning said, Hey, we're gonna, we're gonna run with this guy, Colin, who's not a teacher, who's not, you know, hasn't been in the preschool world, just fully immersed forever. Right. And, you know, it, it takes a lot to be willing to stretch outside of the norm and the tradition to even think about how you bring in innovative leadership opportunities, because that's, that's not always what we see happen. No. And what's even more interesting with my board is they did two, they took two other gambles. The first was they said, Hey, we're bringing someone in that's 24. Cause I was 24 yeah. at the time. Um, <laughs> just a baby, just a, yep, a, a wee infant coming into the, the grown up world for the first time. But I think either explicitly or not, they knew it was going to create almost a conflict in every table that Southside mm -hmm. sat in. You're a hundred years old. You're way too big to pivot and think different. Right. And also you are the youngest nonprofit executive in the city. Right. You do not know enough to know what you don't even know. And right. It, right. it was really fun to operate in that space because we were kind of kept at arm's distance. Right. Because I honestly think there is this perception at first that it wasn't going to work. Right. And then right. on the other side of the house, um, just having that that willingness to say, you know what, innovation isn't bad and we trust yeah. him enough yeah. to do this. I think we should take the gamble. Um, yeah. It's paid off. Yeah. 
and it's paid off quite a bit. I, I, I don't know if we're going to chat about it later, but we just recently received a $2.2 million gift mm-hmm. purely for growth and innovation, yeah, which is that. not Amazing. something. Yeah, yeah. It does yeah. not happen in education. Yeah. Um, that's not the norm. It's definitely not the norm in early childhood. Yeah. So we are really, really excited that we've been able to execute on some of the, mm-hmm. the big thinking that my board committed to even before right. bringing me in. Yeah. And that's, that's a remarkable piece. No question whatsoever. And I think one of the other things that um, is also sort of a remarkable gamble on the part of your board, and I don't know that you've even thought about this one or not, but I'm going to toss it out there because um, first time I met you, I was like, huh, that was really innovative of them because, you know, early childhood education, quite frankly, it's a world of women. Yes. Right. It yeah. is. And we talk about it all the time, you know, even, even when we talk about K-12, about how desperately we need amazing men in the classroom, you know, leading. And oftentimes we'll see a fair number of male elementary school principals, mm-hmm. but you don't see people rolling up their sleeves really involved. And although your role is administrative role, um, I also happen to know you're there. Yes. Right? So kiddos are immersed with you. They're they, they see you. It's more than just leading an organization. It's leading by doing an organization. And again, we don't see men in early childhood. Yeah. And I think that, again, that was another really, really important component that was an interesting sort of twist on the way your board was thinking. And if we're going to keep celebrating my board here, which I think we should, I am also open and outwardly queer, which yeah. is also not the norm in early childhood. And it's actually... Yeah. The reason a lot of men don't go into early childhood mm-hmm. is because this fear, particularly in community-based early childhood settings that are serving lower-income communities, that you're going to have to grapple with the perception of what it means to be a man and then what it means to have the assumption of being a gay or a queer man in right. a classroom with a young child. Right. Um, so right. it was just gambles all yeah. around that... Yeah. I mean, they deserve to be celebrated for. And I don't think even I have done that enough. Yeah. No, but I think those are really, really important distinctions. Like, and I, and I, and I appreciate the opportunity to just put them all out there and say, you know, this is what happens, right? Because the truth of the matter is the success of Southside early learning and its impact in this community and its impact in early childhood education in this community cannot be underscored, nor should it, right? And so I just want to really kind of go on record and say, you know, it has been a game changer in the community. When you came on board, when your board said, let's, 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 let's take a gamble on this guy, right? And let's see what can happen because it's been nothing but positive impacts with ripples effects all over the community, which I think gets us back to then the conversation around the way we were thinking about that moonshot. And and so I would ask for you to sort of lay out the early childhood component, that sort of early elementary piece that you and I structured. And then I want to talk about, do we think the same thing on the flip side of what we just, you know, have gone through? Yeah. So in the early childhood component of what we were thinking, and I'll give the high level, I really want yeah. folks to go read it because I think yeah, we laid exactly. some really cool things out. <laughs> I think so too. And we'll post it with this episode. The Perfect. Link. But it really was this idea of one, early childhood should start young. And by young, right. I mean six weeks. We mm-hmm. know that 90% of brain development is happening before the age of three. Let's not start education at four or five. Let's right. start at six weeks. And then let's rethink about what we're considering with early childhood education. It's not just the ABCs and one, two, threes, Mm -hmm. but to me, it really is rooting these skills around discovery and democratic life skills. Mm -hmm. So how do we teach the foundations in early childhood for what we're going to need for years to come? 
And part of my thinking of early childhood is it really is this um, pre-K, even though I'm talking about six weeks, I'm going to use pre-K for the the sake of conversation, through fifth grade for me. A lot of times when we think about early childhood, we'll stop at maybe third. Mm -hmm. But I think the way that we could go about teaching in the early childhood context and some of the foundations that we could lay out are consistent through fifth grade. And it's the ideas of how do we engage children in real life? Um, experiences? How do we create those both in and out of the classroom? And then how do we reconceptualize what we think a classroom is to start to include things like um, museums and libraries, which we talked about a little bit in Moonshot. But I even go as one step further in saying the grocery store is a classroom. We are really intentional about how we're pushing our grocery cart around with our little and the cart itself and how we have conversations about color, size, and shape, and sounds that a cow would make Mm -hmm. when you go by the dairy section. And what we are laying out here really was breaking the traditional norm of how we think about learning and how we really root it in something that is discovery-based and really focused on teaching those foundational skills and not assuming that because you know, they're babies that they can't do that. Right. And really looking at the whole brain and tapping into that potential. And I think at least what I was hoping to convey with our moonshot is when we start that young, not only are we setting up for success, which Mm -hmm. any early childhood research will tell us, but it shifts the way that we as adults think about students, which allows us to do some really cool things on the back half of education, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. I know PASS is really involved in. Um, and you really are a champion of, but it takes that shifting of perspective and framework um, to happen in early childhood, I think, if mm-hmm. we're going to be successful in reinventing K-12 and beyond. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that was part of what I just really loved about that entire endeavor as well. And I also really liked the fact that we very consciously thought about the sort of the role of discovery and curiosity, right? Which is just, it's so magical and in our littles as as you always use that term and i and i love that you know when we think about the imagination just the innate raw imagination that comes at that phase of life and the reality of it and many 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 of us have seen it you know the highly immobile structure there's nothing wrong with structure but the highly immobile structure that we have found ourselves in within a lot of k-12 not all of it out of fairness but a lot of k-12 you know certainly in the last 20 years the last 50 years i would argue and, and and even beyond we crush the imagination and the creativity out of our students and what it means is that by the time we get to that flip side right you know the back end of that that k-12 journey you know, it's just like, oh, I just want to graduate. I want to be done. I want to get a job or I want to go to school, but I'm not passionate about what that future is. Mm-hmm. And when we lose the passion to live and explore life, we will never, ever be full citizens, which is the other piece of the conversation that I loved so much, right? Is that we talked about the fact that not only do we need to, to um, you know, to really sort of harvest that native imagination and curiosity, but we also then have this great opportunity to teach citizenship. And what does that truly mean to be a citizen of your community, your neighborhood, your church, your, uh, your scout, whatever it happens to be, right? That, that you have a meaningful role in the world that we occupy. That's the other piece of it, right? And so that gets us into social justice. And I mean, I love love the interweaving of these elements. 
So with all that said, Colin, you know, then comes a pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Does, does all this still hold true? I mean, do we feel the same way? I think we do. At least I do. <laughs> I do too. Okay. <laughs> so we can say we do. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and what was so interesting to me in the early stages of the pandemic, so um, a little bit of, of context on the early childhood side, unlike K-12, aside from a, about 50 days in Ohio, early childhood mm-hmm. stayed open. Right, um, right. We, we didn't really have much of a choice, but there was a very small window of about 50 days. And then for some families that chose mm-hmm. to not come back in person, where I thought this will be interesting because early childhood does not innovate. We really mm-hmm. haven't innovated mm-hmm. since the initial Head Start Act of 1965. Right. right. So I was like, what are we going to do? And what we saw was a lot of what I think folks assume is innovation in K-12 come down to early childhood, which was teach remote, mm-hmm. do, do preschool online, first of all. <laughs> Yeah, let's talk about all the ways that that wasn't going to work. And we tried, we gave it an Uh effort. But what I was realizing is we were moving more rapidly towards a standardization of early childhood that wasn't actually in the best interest of early childhood practice. Mm -hmm. And it made me stop and think and go, oh, maybe this innovation push needs to come a lot harder, a lot faster. Mm -hmm. And we need to be smarter about how we're going to do that. Um, which is part of the reason why we launched out the Center for Early Childhood Innovation in mm-hmm. June, which I'm going to earmark for a second mm-hmm. and we'll hopefully yeah. come back to that. But I really do think now more than ever, we need to encourage and be intentional about this discovery and teaching of these democratic life skills and teaching mm-hmm. of citizenship and understanding that now is our, I still think, one time to actually radically shift things like we called for in the moonshot. Mm-hmm. I don't think schools really have affirmatively decided how they're going to pivot outside of the pandemic because the reality is we're still very much in it. Oh, we are. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think when we put this piece together, we were assuming at this point we would be you know, dreaming up the schools of tomorrow and putting down some infrastructure and maybe laying yeah. some bricks, yeah. but we are not even to the yeah. point of thinking about that. Yeah. Because we're entering another school year where we don't quite know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, super unpopular opinion. And mm-hmm. I, I know a lot of parents are probably not going to love hearing that. But as an administrator of a program, mm-hmm. uh, because we do have classroom based work too, obviously, right. I'm right. still going week to week. I am yeah. still looking. We are too. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, you know, when I think about, you know, the, the background you see behind me, it's the same sort of thing, right? You know, I'm just hoping, right, that we're going to be able to fill that space with, with, with you know, real live, yeah. active, engaged students, you know. Um, and while that's the plan, I, I think that it's, it's fair we have to reiterate, you know, we're just in another phase of this thing, mm-hmm. but we are not beyond it yet. Right. Yeah. The one... Um maybe point of concern that the pandemic gave me to our radical idea here was <laughs> relying, poss- you know, possibly relying just on the science might not be enough anymore. We might have to oh, become right. really good storytellers yep. to convince mm-hmm. families that this is the shift that we should be making yeah. in education. I think there's actually no doubt about that, right? Because I mean, I think, you know, I, I can imagine it's the same Thing in the early childhood space that, that we see, especially as you get up into the, the upper grades, middle and high school in particular in K-12 and certainly beyond is, 
you know, this notion, well, it was good enough for me, mm-hmm. right? You know, you've got that parent in that community conversation that says, yes, but it's always worked. Or, you know, you're, you, the, the schools or school districts that quite frankly, they test really well. Their performance is really great. And we've got a lot of those right here in central Ohio as well, right? We have a fair number of struggling and failing schools, but we have a fair number of really great testing, right? Yeah. Schools, but that doesn't necessarily translate into what's really the, in the best interest of our kids, today. But that's a tough conversation to have, Colin. It is. And I think that's why I love more than anything what we put together is the actual closing. This idea of let's not shift to the new normal, let's shift Mm -hmm. to the new. Mm -hmm. And let's acknowledge what needs to happen because policy or mandate says that it has to happen. But let's not have that be the end all and let's not Mm -hmm. have that steer the ship. Right. I love that. Yes. Mm -hmm. And let's actually Mm -hmm. chart chart a course out and think, how are we going to do this? And why do we want to do this beyond just the test score or beyond just the accreditation or in my world, um, you know, the step up the quality licensure, right? Right. There's something beyond the vanity metrics. Cause unfortunately for me, a lot of those things are just vanity metrics, right? Right. That doesn't tie into the outcomes that we want to see for littles and students. Right. Yeah. There's a difference. There's a huge, huge difference. And I think that's absolutely fair. And thank you for for bringing that forward because there is no question whatsoever. So that's the the perfect segue into, okay, because, you know, Colin has not been idle for the last 18 months. No. No question. (laughs) You know, other than 50 days of closed doors, which you guys were still working really hard in that 50 days. But there's been a lot of really innovative, creative, and wonderful things that Southside has been doing. So, so let's share a little because you know, you guys not only didn't stop, you said, but we're actually gonna push through. Yeah. And we're gonna push forward, right? The pandemic's gonna do what it's gonna do. We can't change that. We're just going to continue to operate within it, whatever that phase happens to be, like so many of us. But yet you did not stop innovating along the way and you know, really carried forward some of the aspirations that the organization had. So so let's talk about some of those and why you pulled the trigger, if you will, on this one versus that one, yeah. um, in sort of the pantheon of ideas that you had. Yeah. So even thinking back to March 12th. I remember the conversation with our um, social impact manager at the time mm-hmm. who you know, is now a social worker. And I'm, I'm very happy that she was able to move on, but was really a loss for me because she was fantastic. Right. But we saw rumblings of the pandemic happening the weeks before. Right. And I remember right. turning to her and, and saying, I don't know what we need to do. I'm not sure what we should be doing, or even if we have to plan this far ahead. But I want you to put a plan together and let me know mm-hmm. how we're going to take care of the families because they right. won't be here. Right. And at that time, the thought of closing early childhood, I don't even think was in anyone's deck of cards. I didn't think we saw that as a play that was right. going to actually right. happen. Right. So we put together what we call care, called care kits. Mm-hmm. And we they were weekly ways to connect in with our families. They came um, through the almost assembly line of cars and we'd hand the kits to the families. And it did two things. In the kits themselves were either education, materials, food, personal hygiene products, cleaning supplies, the things Mm -hmm. that we knew our family center was normally providing. Instead of targeting families, we said, we don't know what's going to happen to employment or household stability. So everyone is getting one of these and we're going to do them weekly. 
And it also gave us an opportunity to check in and say, is everything okay at home? Mm-hmm. Both with the verbal ask, but then also just checking on the family. Right, right. What's right. happening? What's the stability going on? We gave out over a thousand of those. Wow, um, that's awesome. Which was awesome, both mm-hmm. at Southside and then kind of to the next success that we had was we acquired Hilltop Preschool. Um, right. We took another program that needed an, an injection and maybe innovation mm-hmm. and just the the nature of the pandemic and the uncertainty. The reality for early childhood is you're stronger in numbers. If you can right. centralize your administrative team, you can serve more littles and you can be more effective. Um, so we started actually with a center management agreement. We mm-hmm. we took a very different approach. It wasn't the traditional acquisition process. We actually tried on the acquisition for three months before we did that. Oh, um, really? Wow. Okay. Yeah. And we took all of the administrative responsibilities of the program. We were doing programmatic. My director of program stepped in for that. Our senior mm-hmm. director of finance and business operations was helping run the books on the back end. We actually hired as a Southside employee, a center director to manage the day-to-day operation. And we we tried it on for a bit before fully acquiring the program um, on the last day of 2020, um, which most programs at that point were laying mm-hmm. off and shuttering the doors. And yep. Yep. we decided to be bold and yep. not let a program fall and then try to fill in later. Let's just bring them into the family. Right, right which there was more to that than I think I I knew <laughs> I was getting into, but it, it's working well. And we're really excited to have been able to expand into the mm-hmm. West side. What I also had my team do though, was think about what are we doing? What's our model and what's our approach? Mm-hmm. Um, and I talked a little bit about the model before, but we started to think about approach and said, okay, would we ever start a standalone childcare center? You know, right. a building where we operated all of the walls. There was no partners in there, just us. The way that I think a lot of us think about childcare. And the answer quickly became no. Right. And then the question became, okay, then what? Right. You know, is it always going to be like the Reeve Avenue Center, which is our flagship school where we add on with nonprofits? And we came up with these four different approaches that we then started maybe aggressively could be the word to use, but yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Aggressively started moving towards. So we thought serve learn is what we're doing right now. We're partnering mm-hmm. with nonprofits. We're providing this community approach. We're grounding early childhood as a community hub and a place for community development. Um, and we, we are very good at that. We've been doing yeah. that for a hundred years. Yeah. Then we also said, let's look at the barriers of families that we serve. And how do we address some of those barriers through early childhood as well, going one step beyond our current thinking of community development? And we ventured into what we're calling Live Learn. We're actually building micro schools and affordable housing complexes. Yay! Which you're very excited about. (laughs) Um, Two opening by the end of the year, one more in discussion for 2022. And then our opening conversations about what could that look like, having Mm -hmm. these really intentional and well-built programs where, again, it's not next door to affordable housing. It shares walls. It is at the end of the housing complex. We know housing and transportation are barriers for families and littles. Let's remove it. Let's build it right there. Yeah, And let's do yeah. it in a, a compact way. It's only 3,000 square feet, which is very right. different than Reeb Avenue, which is you know, 15 or 20,000 square feet. Um, yeah. So we're excited about that. And then, how many how many students will that serve? That that size space, just to give people a little bit of context. I know that's going to be like, oh, how many kids would that be? Right? Yeah, 
So it'll serve um, about 25, which probably doesn't sound Perfect. like a lot. No, but that's the micro concept, right? Exactly. You know, it's very intimate. It's going to be incredibly intimate with those families. Exactly. And all of our programs um, are intentionally small because of the approach that we're using. So in right. the infant toddler classrooms, mixed age, it's going to be three teachers with a max of nine little. So a one to right. three ratio. Right. We know that's what they need at that point. Right. Right. And then when we transition the pre-K, it's going to be a max of 18 with, again, three teachers. Right. So one to six really thoughtful and intentional mm-hmm. small classrooms that are far below what the state says I have to right. do from a licensing right. perspective. Right. And again, with each of that, we are we have a bachelor degree teacher in every classroom. Even our right. infant te- classrooms have right. a bachelor's degree. Right. Um, Which is not typical in pre-K like, no. I, at all. So let's be really, really clear about it. that is one of the innovations yeah. the Southside has really uh, pushed. Yeah. So we have these micro schools, which we're really excited about. And then we started getting bold, which I didn't think my team could get more bold than we already were. And we said, we have this micro school. We have these really large programs because even Reeve Avenue has nine yeah. classrooms. That's that's a big school. Big. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. We started thinking, how can we go to employers and build out WorkLearn where we're intentionally in areas mm-hmm. of employment on the campus of the employer right. themselves? Um, again, removing that transportation and now work barrier that right. we see. Right. And we have been thinking a lot about, and I think we're going to start moving on LearnLearn with mm-hmm. both higher ed and then maybe even in the K-12 space, how do we mm-hmm. integrate and co-locate together to where we could have early childhood programs that also provide opportunities for students, whether you know it's high school or higher ed, mm-hmm. to get very intentional hands-on training in an early childhood classroom and build out that pipeline so you awesome. can make a career and a profession out of early Yay. childhood. Love that so much. And it's so desperately needed. Yes. Bravo. Yes. Right now we're seeing, I, I believe the, the statistic, and it could be even worse than I'm remembering it, is one in five programs across the country do not have enough staff to operate. So Correct. it's not that they're yeah. understaffed. It's that they can't even open the doors because right. staffing is right. a barrier. Right. And it, it needs drastic and dramatic change. We need to build mm-hmm. out the early childhood workforce and we have to actually treat them like they're valuable assets to the education community like they are. Correct. We, Rather than just an afterthought or exactly. a pre-thought, but that we're not compensating in the same way that we are, that we're not really thinking of them as a licensed teacher yep. in the same way, right? And we've created this artificial sort of hierarchy that quite frankly... A is ridiculous, and B, if you're gonna if you're gonna swap it, turn it on it on it on its head, right? Because yeah. the foundation, without the foundation, the rest of it is just a complete slog, quite frankly, right? Yeah, and as someone who studies the early childhood workforce, because that is yeah. my that is my background from a right. research perspective, a lot of it has to do with the history of who has been an early childhood teacher, mm-hmm. and I, I do want to acknowledge it. I won't dive into it too far, but it's predominantly women of color that are in the early yep. childhood workforce. Those that have been denied access to the bachelor's right. degree to be a K-12 teacher right. that end up in early childhood, which I'm so glad that they are because the early childhood workforce is dynamic and bold and resilient. But now what we're doing is from a policy perspective, we're saying, hey, this early childhood thing is important. We're going to create systems that improve access. We're going to create universal systems in some municipalities and some states. Mm-hmm. But because of how we like to policy make in the United States, yes. <laughs> we are creating these artificial 
in my mind, artificial barriers that don't need to be there where we're requiring bachelor's degrees. And what we're doing is further disrupting the workforce Mm -hmm. or we're telling professionals that have been in their jobs for a decade that actually you can't move up to leading your own classroom because you don't have a bachelor's degree. We're going to ignore the fact that you've been denied access to that up until this point. Correct. Right. That's something that we work really hard at at Southside is to ensure we can meet the requirements from the policy perspective, but that we are also going to treat our workforce well. And it's a upcoming initiative that's launching out in September. Um, But equity is something that we are Mm -hmm. really passionate about. We're adjusting our our minimum wage to be $32,000 a year at Southside with no credential, you know, minimal credentialing and no experience. Right. Right. Because when you track that out to when you actually have the bachelor's degree or the master's degree on staff, their their wages are aligned with the K-12 system. And I no longer have to worry about my awesome teachers that have the experience Mm -hmm. leaving me for a kindergarten classroom. Yeah, yeah. It's a problem, right? We understand that's our real problem, right? And so, you know, trying to find ways to to make it worth everybody's while to stay in the place that you love, right? We know it's meaningful. We know early childhood is about 35% of teachers turning over every year. Right. And an average wage, at least here in Franklin County, of $10 and 68 some odd cents. I think nationally it's like $9 and 30 some Mm -hmm. odd cents. Mm -hmm. To be able to say, here's my staff who have an average tenure of 13 years, where we have at least one bachelor degree in every classroom, a quarter of which have been with me more than 20 years, we are going to put them on track with K 12. Because mm-hmm. not because I was losing, honestly, it's not because right. I was losing folks. It's because I was tired of talking about how bad it was. And right. my board made that commitment to our workforce to say they deserve it. Why are we? Absolutely. It's only fair, right? That's yeah. equitable. I mean, you know, I step back and think about that. I mean, you know, even all the high school kiddos that we hire in the summertime to help, you know, facilitate with, with camps, we pay them $15 an hour. Yeah. Right. You know, and so it's like, come on, we, we have to honor our workforce. Exactly. Real living wages. Living wages. There is no reason that a teacher, whether it's early childhood or K-12, should have to use the same subsidies that we are putting in my world families into early childhood so we can break cycles of poverty. Why are we creating a poverty-driven workforce? It doesn't make sense. It's counter to what we're trying to do. Exactly. So I'm excited that we're stepping up and we're doing that um, this school year, which I'm, we're, we're doing a bunch of research around and we're uh, you know going to evaluate the impact of that. But he, honestly, even if that research comes back with no results, it doesn't matter. We've made right. real right. impacts in someone's actual life. Um, it's that difference between, you know, what, what is a data point for a statistic in a study and then yeah. what, who is behind that data point? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you made a commitment to these people. That's the other thing, right? And and so, you know, the, the research aside, it's the right thing to do for so many different reasons. And, you know, back to something I said earlier, it will have a ripple effect. Yeah. It will have a ripple effect in the most positive way in this community and hopefully, you know, in other parts of the state as well. So, you know, bravo um, on that. You know, I want to make sure before, before we close, we're getting ready to run out of time. I want to make sure we talk a little bit about the the ECE workforce piece Mm -hmm. just a little bit more, right? Because I do think that is one of those really remarkable components that I don't see others in early childhood necessarily thinking about so deliberately. So flesh that out just a little bit more for us, please. You've made reference to it throughout. 
Yeah. So I'm fortunate that I, I'm at a nonprofit early childhood uh, mm-hmm. program where it allows me to tell this story in an even more impactful way. So I think I'm going to put on my development hat for a yeah. second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the reality is for early childhood programs, um, if someone's looking to invest, if someone's looking to donate into a program like Southside, you're not donating into the books or the supplies or right. the building. I mean, you are if it's a capital campaign, yeah, yeah. but the program itself is actually the teachers. It, it's not mm-hmm. the littles. They're, they're the cute part. Right. They're the thing right. that we're um, working towards. Right. right, yeah. There's a photo op, yeah. <laughs> but the end of the day, if you don't have exceptional teachers, like I truly believe I, I have, and I know everyone mm-hmm. probably says that about yeah. their staff, but I've worked in a lot of programs from a research perspective. I've seen the early childhood workforce. It's what I study. I have exceptional teachers at Southside. And my question always is, why did you stay? Right. I have teachers that have been in a Southside classroom, not just in a classroom, in a Southside classroom longer than I have been alive. Wow. That's remarkable. It is. And my question yeah. to them is always, thank you, but <laughs> why? Why yeah. are you here? And there's a couple of things that happen. Southside has always given them the autonomy to mm-hmm. be a professional and implement what they think is going to be best practice and try it out. And right. there's something about when you can say to a teacher, not only are you a teacher, but I trust that you are the expert yeah. in this. Yeah. Yeah. Let us know how it works. And we're going to scale that if we can into other rooms and try it out. And if it doesn't, that's okay. We're not going to fault you for that. Right, right. So there's that professionalism that we give them. There's the sense of community. I have teachers that also went to Southside because we've been around for a yeah. hundred years. Yeah. yeah. They know that early childhood and their work directly makes a difference in the neighborhood that they're they're working in and that they're serving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that we do is we're really intentional about building out this pipeline. So whether you are a recent high school graduate and you want to work on your child development accreditation, the CDA, which is a minimum requirement for licensure Mm -hmm. and hiring at Southside, you can come in at that point. You could come in as a student that just got their associate's degree. You could come in as a student teacher in the bachelor's degree pipeline. Mm -hmm. You could go and work towards that master's degree. We will support you every step along the way. Because whatever your educational aspirations are, I want to ensure that we are Mm -hmm. able to foster that. Those three things don't sound that dramatic or radical, but you would be surprised how often that is not the case in the early childhood world. Usually early childhood is severely overworked. A ton of stress is in the field. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of strain on uh, the body itself. It's a very physically demanding job. And we don't often, until recently when the research has started to point it out, think about the well-being of an early childhood professional, of these mostly women who Mm -hmm. are taking care of, honestly, our most prized possession and treasure Mm -hmm. as a nation Mm -hmm. and making sure that we are caring for them. Um, It's really amazing how the smallest changes from the administrative side of things and even honestly refer to early childhood teachers as teachers. Right. Don't Absolutely. call them childcare workers. Right. Right. They have yeah. all, a lot of times the same credentialing that your kindergarten teacher would have. And the difference Absolutely. is six months of time for the age of the student that they're working with. Right. Right. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, Colin, um, I want to I want to thank you so much for making time in your day to have this conversation with us. And you know, it is a true, true pleasure um, uh, to chat. But you know, it is a true pleasure to have you and the work of Southside in our community. And I, for one, am just feel incredibly privileged to get the chance just to work with you. And I hope that we get to continue uh, to sort of develop some of the ideas um, that we've been sharing today. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I love the work of PEST and all the work that you're doing. And I look Mm -hmm. forward to us collaborating again in the future. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.